it was more than a march. It was more than than the idea that I think some people have of like, oh, we just marching and chanting. Things were shifting energetically because everything is energy. Everything is frequency. And frequency shifts everything. These kind of relationships that get disturbed and we don't take the time to know what it is to say, to know how to Welcome. I have here joining Tone the Fork, the wonderful, beautiful, talented Ayana Gregory. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I'm glad to be here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. I um, Every now and then I get this deep feeling of selfishness as it relates to Tone the Fork because I get so much from the process that I go through to learn about the guests that I have coming on. And even though, you know, most of the people who come on, I know, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. in order to get to know a little bit more through the surface, I have to do research. I have to dig. And when I do that, I tell you, the downloads, all of that just start coming and I start connecting these dots and things just start making sense about how to see certain things. And, and when I was going through that process with you, I was like, wow, how can I give back in a way to make her at least feel like there's this equilibrium of, of, of shared positivity and growth and change in each other. And I, I, hopefully through this process at the other end, I'll be able to share just a piece of what I got from learning about you through here, through the process. So that was a mouthful, but I think I'm going to stop there. Um, how have you been doing? What, well, let me take a step back. For those of you who don't know, Ayana Gregory is the daughter of the late, legendary human being, enigma known as Dick Gregory. Yes. He was known as many things. And I think through the process of me just being an outside observer, he was just a beautiful soul, a beautiful mm -hmm. spirit. And what you got from him was just probably more of a reflection of what you thought about yourself or whatever the case may be. But um, through being one of the 10 children, where do you fit in the, the lineup? I'm the second to the baby. OK, so you're number nine. I'm number nine out of 10, but technically number 10 out of 11. Okay. really there were 11. Um, after my first two oldest sisters were born, there was a son named Richard. Okay. A brother that I had named, that we had named Richard. And he lived maybe a few months old. And so I am doing a better job of acknowledging him. You know, I'm so used to saying there's 10. My siblings are like, no, there are 11. You know, I got you. We, we honor him. So, so I'm number 10 out of 11. So for all intents and purposes, I'm the baby. Because even though my brother is younger than me, everybody treats me as the baby. Now, the oldest is how much older? So, the old, so there's a 14-year span. Okay. Yeah, there's a 14-year span. So my oldest sister, Michelle, was born in 1959, and Johanse was born in 1973. Okay. Yeah. And I know what year you were born. Do you say what year you were born? 71. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Um, through the process of being a part of this family, this, this force, you guys were grown, you guys were raised initially in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And how long were you living there before you guys? Not even two years. Okay. So I don't remember Chicago. So most of your early time was spent when you moved where? To Plymouth, Massachusetts. Okay. Um, and in that age range of being the youngest, well, some of the other ones were born while, while you guys were in Plymouth, right? Well, no, everyone was born, uh, most of us were born in um, Chicago. My oldest sister was born in St. Louis, but the rest of us were born in Chicago. Johansi was like three weeks old okay. um, when we moved. So you had really no idea what the culture difference was moving from there to there, but you're, but you're older. Oh, they went through major shifts. Yeah, they did not, nobody wanted to move. What was um, life like as a child growing up, the daughter of Dick Gregory? Man, that shit was fun. Was it? <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> it was so much fun. Um, it was, it was kind of wild because we were like an experiment of my dad's. You know, he was so ahead of his time. He was, he was making it up as he went, literally. Mm. So imagine having the imagination of a child, uh, genius level of brilliance, a love, a deep love for humanity and just a fearlessness. And you happen to have a wife and 10 kids making it up as you go. Yeah. Like some amazing things are going to happen. So, um, and some scary things are going to happen. And so, um, it was such a combination. So there was like, there were so many different sectors of my life. Okay. There was home life with dad home. It was home life with dad gone. There was life on the road with dad uh, around all these celebrities. There was life in the civil rights and human rights movement, mm. particularly down south. Um, there was life at school in white world. There were like so many worlds that had to try to integrate as best they could. So life at home with the kid, just with the kids, with us, it was fun. I mean, we grew up on 300 acres of land. Wow. It was just, it was us in nature. Mm-hmm. You know, 10 get black kids coming from the south side of Chicago, rolling up on some land. Did y'all have a lot of neighbors? No. So when, was, you went to school there, I'm assuming. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was the demographics like in the schools? All white. Okay. They say we integrated the town when we got there. That was the running joke. Do you know why your dad and mom picked Massachusetts? Dad, I'm still, I'm still asking. I'm still <laughs> wondering. We still don't know this. Okay. Okay. So. Um, I mean, from what I'm told, he was like, we got to get out of Chicago. I can't remember all the reasons why. Um, and so a friend of his... Uh, who's also pretty legendary in the, in the holistic health world, a man named Victor Kolvinskis, who was one of dad's holistic health mentors. 
told him about uh, a house in New England, you know, that had all this land. So I think dad was just open. I don't think he was set on Massachusetts. I think he was like, we got to get out of the city and, uh, you know, we got to get back to nature. And I think it was just kind of like, almost like on a whim that his friend Victor said, hey, look, there's a house here, there's a house there, you know, check them out. And dad was just, you know, he was moving, you know, a zillion miles a minute. He was still, you know, doing so many things all around the world. It was just like, okay, we'll check that out. Matter of fact, they said that when we moved, they said that when we got there, that dad kept looking for an additional floor that wasn't there. He literally thought that he had got a different house than the one we got. That's how much this man was moving. Oh, wow. He was like, wait, I thought this was, it was already, it was already bought. <laughs> so it just was hap It just must've been meant to be because yeah. there was really no logical reason that we would have ended up in Plymouth, Massachusetts of yeah. all places. It really just was kind of like the spirits just said, this where they're going. Now, how long were you there before you moved, before y'all moved somewhere else? We, we never moved as a family. Um, everybody just kind of like, Went on off to college. And oh, so you spent all your... My entire childhood until I left for black college, praise God. <laughs> so what was it like going to grade school mm. Mm. with people knowing, but the, at least the adults knew, was, was there an awareness of the children, just how prominent and famous your dad like so he was just dad okay the children had no clue because we were in such a white environment they had no clue what they knew was that we had a famous dad they didn't know why um so there was a little curiosity like what does your dad do um but no the adults the adults knew um the adults knew um so yeah, there was a little, and I mean, it was, you know, we encountered so much racism. I mean, overt racism as well as uh, invisible. Uh, and so it was, it was interesting, you know, because um, the kids kind of knew something. I, I mean, to be honest, I feel like, I feel like I was more famous as a child. I mean, if I can say that word, not because of my dad, but because of the legend of my older siblings, you know what I mean? Okay. It's like these big families, you, you, you know what I mean? It's so like they was wrecking shit? is already there before you, before you arrive, like, oh, let's go down the list, Michelle, Lynn, Pamela, Paula, Steph, you know, and so every teacher has had, you know, at least three, four of your siblings, and they were, they were serious leaders, and so. What kind of, what kind of, what kind of path did they pay for you, your, your siblings? Um... They were very bold. I was not as a child. I was very shy, very shy, very uh, easily intimidated, uh, afraid of my own power, um, not comfortable in my own shoes. Uh, so my older siblings, I just marveled at their boldness, you know, how mm. they faced, how they uh, stood up to racism, how they uh, boldly proclaimed their blackness. Uh, particularly my uh, sister Lynn. I mean, she was she was literally just like legendary <laughs> in Chicago and in Massachusetts. I mean, she just um, so they were and and for whatever reason, my siblings were very physically strong, always skinny. You know, we were like a skinny family. You know, so you'd see Lynn, you know, walking around with like 
a pack of boys behind her, and they would Lynn would be their leader, like literally, like you know, wow. we, we ride with Lynn. Where she go, we go. You know, she walked out of school, unintentionally started like a whole school walkout because in gym class, you know, it was like something the gym teachers were asking them to do, and she was like, I'm not having it. And they were like, Lynn. The other kids were like, whatever you do, we'll do. And it was like a whole school walkout, or you know, at least a lot of the kids left out. So that was kind of the energy that preceded me. So that was really, you know, even, even before I came into my own, I loved knowing that I had all of these brothers and sisters mm -hmm. older than me. That if I really, really needed somebody to roll up to that school, and, and, and rec shop, and, and my mom, you know, mom didn't play, you know, so there was all kind of racial incidents and things that happened in wow. school, teachers pretending like they didn't see it, or teachers actually being the perpetrators of mm -hmm. the overt racism that my mom had to deal with. Um, it's like, yeah, you don't want this smoke. So I knew, I, at least, even when I was like afraid to stand up for myself in a moment, I knew like, I got, I got, I got some folk back home to back this up. You know? So your Lynn is how much older than you? Ten years older. Oh, she was like a, a second mom to me. Oh, okay. So there are these two competing ideas about identity, and they're like essentially just all colliding. Or collapsing over one another as you grow up and as you're living your life and developing and all of that. Mm -hmm. And you've got these older siblings giving you a blueprint, I guess, in a way mm -hmm. to just through living, be bold in your blackness and embrace it and speak your truth. And, and when did you start to actually own that? Mm. I would say high school. Okay. It took a, it took a while. It took a while. Um, there was a lot of spiritual things happening on the land. You know, my father was a very spiritual man, and we would do a lot of prayer and meditation. And my understanding of God, uh, or the Most High, the Creator, was, was in nature, you know, so I began to spend a lot of time in nature. And my dad was a, a world-class runner, you know, before mm -hmm. he became famous. Really, that was the first, the first uh, way that he became recognized was as, a, was as a track star. And so he would train us, you know, as, as runners, you know, we were running early and mm. we used to run, uh, it was a four mile run. It was like two miles to the state forest and two miles back to the house. So uh, it wasn't, they were like mandatory runs we would have to do, but what it did for me is it eventually gave me um, an internal, it allowed me to hear my internal rhythm. And so I began to like spend more time on my own running and it was, had nothing to do with competition that's why I think I did so poorly in track later because the competition thing didn't work for me. It was really a spiritual experience. Mm. So I would spend all this time um, running and then I would spend time in nature and, and then like Stevie Wonder's music was like um, the music, the, the, the musical backdrop to the spiritual evolution that was happening inside of me where I was really reckoning with my power and why I was so uncomfortable with my voice, 
why uh, I, I was afraid to to be upright and to um, you know I would I, I would I was recognizing like you keep dumbing yourself down why what are you afraid of are you afraid of them you afraid of you you know um, and so um, Stevie Wonder's music was a major part of my uh, worthiness revolution my mm. spiritual revolution I mean I can't begin to tell you what you know because ultimately. It's like um, I created a parallel universe for myself because what I couldn't find in my physical, what I couldn't find in my social, cultural world, I, I co-created it somewhere else. I looked to other places. So that's why it was kind of like this bubble around me that I had created. So by high school, everything that I needed, I got it from somewhere, even if it wasn't in school, even if it wasn't among my peers. And so um, I think at that point, I had so much... Uh, so much backup and so much fortification along with the fact that at this point, okay, we are going on the road with dad. We are traveling. We are experiencing the civil rights and human rights movement. So it's like, how can I be a punk here when we didn't face some folk down south where we could have lost our life and right. they don't go? So then it was like, yeah, we do stand. We stand in it. We stand in what we live and what we, what we represent. So yeah, no, no mousy voices anymore. I got a deep ass voice. I'm gonna speak that voice. Yeah. Because I used to, I used to, oh, I couldn't stand my voice. I was like, I sound like a boy. Why do I sound? So I would try to raise my pitch, you know, so I could sound like Ashley. Mm. I don't sound like Ashley. I sound like Ayana. Uh, I would used to not correct people, you know. Oh, your name. Oh my God, like it's so weird. It's different. I, I'd let them call me anything. Mm. You know. And so getting to a place where I could really stand in it and then um, challenging teachers, you know, calling them out. Because that's a it's 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 that's weight. You know, it's like you represent all black people. Yeah. So. You got to decide if you're t because you're taking on more than that moment, you know, now you have a target on your back. Now, what is it? You know what I mean? I had to decide. In, in all throughout school, I never wanted to stand for the flag. We'd stand. I forgot about when we used to stand, pledge allegiance to the flag. Yeah, oh, right. yeah. I forgot mm -hmm. all about that. But eighth, seventh grade was when I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Eighth grade, it was like some days I did, some days I didn't. By ninth grade, I was like, I ain't doing this shit no more. I'm clear. So, and I'm ready for the heat if it comes. So I had to be, you know what I mean? It was like I wavered with it. Yeah, yeah. I wavered around it, flip-flopped, and then I was like, I'm good. We get to stand in this. And when you did that, I'm assuming that like a weight kind of lifted in mm -hmm. a way and you could just be in a way. Not at first. When I did that initially, it was it was a lot of heat, you know, because it, it was more trouble for me. Okay. You know, in class, it was more trouble. It was more trouble with teachers that, oh, I thought we liked each other. Mm. Not when I call out your racism, though. Now it's not comfortable. Yeah. You know, so I had to give up some comfortability. I got you. And I'm a, I'm a Libra. I love peace and harmony. And so sometimes I'll forgo the issue just because I don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was very uncomfortable. And then I became comfortable being uncomfortable. But that took a while. Mm. I understand the feeling of a... I was a very shy kid. Like, extremely shy. And I suffer from... I don't want to say suffer. That doesn't sound right. There are parts of that that I still find um, 
difficulty managing now. Maybe that's the same thing, a struggle, but um, I don't know why I didn't want to use that word. Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't talk. I was very shy. I didn't like to tell people when I would eat. I would just, I couldn't even go to my mom and be like, hey, I'm hungry. I would just go sit in the corner and put my head down and then wait for somebody to ask me if I wanted something to eat wow. or if I, if I was ready. I, I never wanted to put myself in a position to express a need. Mm. And that, and it's crazy how, as I'm saying that, based on what you're saying, that kind of has tagged along throughout my whole life. Mm. And I've gotten a little bit better of, even with the, uh, with the Rissy Cat um, conversation when we were talking about how hard it is to tell somebody that you, that what you need, Mm -hmm. um, it's just one of those things. And I, but I, but I, I connect that dot back to a kid, just not having a lot of difficulty with that. But when mm. but being able to do it in certain areas, I think can give you an example of what it looks like to do it in other areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so I that's think so that's true. great that you, that you actually did that. When I'm, if, what's hard for me to comprehend on this side as you're talking is how you guys could be your father is a fascinating man. And I think his light shines so bright at times mm. that at least in terms of the attention that he, the deserved attention that he gets because of who he is and what he sacrificed. I always think about the kids. I always think about the wife. I always think about the people who may not necessarily get that same kind of visibility mm-hmm. and what that is like for them because they're still individuals. They're still moving with likes and wants and desires and interest and all of that. So when I, when I, for the purpose of this here, when I'm, when I'm talking about like your dad, it really is only as an opportunity to reflect it back to how how him being who he was impacted you yeah. in both positive in, in, in all ways. And so um, it's hard for me to imagine 10 black kids going to a school with the world's baddest motherfucker as their father and none of that heat making its way to you guys in that in a in a direct way or in a way that the kids at least perceive direct were you were you guys isolated in a way mm-hmm. okay yeah, yeah, yeah. in a lot of ways because of where we lived if we had stayed in chicago it would have been, we, it, completely different i would have had a completely different childhood i believe okay not to the extent of, I mean, the, the, the movement-related stuff would have been the same. So that, you know, that, that's huge. Um, but in terms of just socially, culturally, and who I knew my dad to be, because my peers didn't know him. You know what I mean? So I didn't even know, I didn't know the weight of who he was as a child. Whereas when we began to interact with, you know, 
Martin Luther King's children, Malcolm's children, all of these other, you know, um, children of, right? Their lives were extremely different from ours. They grew up in a light where everything was connected to, you know what I mean? They, I can't imagine that they were ever able to get away from, I mean, not that they would want to, but if they right. did, they couldn't. Um, uh, Jesse Jackson's children, you know what I mean? Like, they were always, like, in spaces where everyone recognized them as that, whereas growing up, that was not the case for us. And to the, to the extent that I remember in traveling with that, I was a little confused, like, you like I, this is I don't I don't this is my dad but like people are going bananas I remember being in Washington DC in the 70s and we were at some march or something and this big crowd of people racing big crowd of people racing I'm thinking like to get to somebody past us so I'm like daddy like let's move out of the way that not realizing they're coming to him and I'm just looking like who are you you know and then being in his world you're just like in a world when you're just trying to hold on because there's so much going on, it's lights, it's cameras, it's people who need things like, Dick, Dick, I'm, you know, this is a situation going on in Mississippi, this is this going yeah, on, yeah. you know, and so you're just like, this is his world, you know, and then you get a little older and then you become a little more comfortable with that world. And so it's like, you have all these different worlds and then you just compartmentalize. This is my life on the road. This is my life sitting in the dressing room with the Jackson 5. This is my life, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's It's... It's just you had like four or five different worlds and then you just learned to integrate them somehow. So in the having the four or five different worlds, would you say my mother told me something once at a funeral. She was like, no two children have the same parent. And I thought about that. It took me a while to really comprehend what that meant and thinking about like your perspective. And it's I'm not asking you to speak about anything outside of yours, but having siblings that are that much older, I'm sure there are different vantage so points because of the age difference and, you know, and all of that. So different. The it, older ones experience so much more of the movement, you know? Like I have siblings who were at the March on Washington, the March on Washington in 1963. You know, I have siblings who at four and six years old marched and went to jail as babies those who were born in the 50s and 60s, you know, they had a very different experience. So we marched, we did things, but it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't 50s and 60s. <laughs> yeah, that was a different kind of march. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah. they lived a very different, and dad was always, you know, he was taking them with him. And that was like his, his that was also, also when different ones of us were born, also coincided with different levels of his um, financial abundance, mm. his uh, notoriety, and what he was what he was famous for, you know? Because in the beginning, it's like he's this famous comedian. Right. Then it's civil rights. Then it's the Bahamian diet. Yeah. It's, you know what I mean? It's all these different things that people were like, oh, you know, then he was famous... He would be, you know, quote unquote, relevant again with the young people like, OK, they said his name on a house party. So right, right. Talking about, oh, give me some of that Dick Gregory or then, you know what I mean? So it was like different stages. There were different things happening um, in his world that made whoever, you know, was around, uh, you know, depending upon the age, you know, if I was little. There were certain things I wouldn't be able to understand. The older ones really understood. Right. Right. You know, the death threats. 
the, I think we all knew that there was a sense of danger um, that we were in, but for whatever reason, no, I don't want to say for whatever reason, the, 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 the God presence in, within us and around us, and that was just evident on the land on which we lived, was so profoundly powerful that literally when we left home, the doors were left open, was, were left unlocked. My father was, uh, un, was, was listed in the, you know, in the yellow pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had yellow pages. Mm-hmm. Anyone could call him. So he was like, you got a target on my back, America? Come get it. You mentioned something earlier about something shifting in the nature. Mm-hmm. Something shifting on the land uh, when you were growing up. Is that kind of, is that what you just mentioned with that protective force or whatever? Is that what you were speaking yeah. to? And even at a young age, you could feel that. I could feel that. We knew somehow we were protected. We knew there were death threats. I didn't know at the time that there were actually assassination attempts on his life. Mm. Um, we knew certain, some things were explained to us, some things weren't. Right, right. Um, Big Mike, who used to take care of us, he was killed. They were trying to kill my dad. They got Big Mike. I thought it was an accident, you know. Um... So some things we knew, some things we, we knew, we knew that the phones were tapped. We used to have, we used to make jokes, talking to the FBI on the phone. We used to call, you know, hey, you know, we changed the acronym, Funky Booty Inspector. We talking <laughs> on the phone, talking big, talking big smack. Here we, here we is, here we are. What you want to know? What you want to hear? What did your, um, what was your, your adolescent brain, how, was you, how were you processing the fact that your dad was gone so much? Mm, initially, there was a little bit of, okay. So people would say, wow, you must miss him. And I was kind of ashamed to say, I don't. I don't know him well enough to miss him. That okay. was something I never really wanted to say because the reality was that he was gone most of the time. Um, I got to know my dad much differently as I got older. But as a kid, you know, he was home. He was in and out when he was home. I mean, I say that, but you know how you remember different, you know, certain times. I'm like, no, dad was actually home quite a bit, you know. But I'm like, no, dad was gone most of the time, which he wasn't gone most of the time. But um, so I didn't know him enough to miss him like daddy. And so um, I think I felt bad about that. Because I felt like I, I should have. Mm. But I didn't. I didn't miss him when he was gone, you know. Um, as, and I had amazing experiences with him when he was home. But I also had experiences where I was like, when is he leaving? Yeah. Because he was, he was always coming with a different plan, you know. I mean, you enter the house and it's like, no transition. It's like, okay, boom, no meat. All the meat, meat leave the house. No dairy products now. No white bread. No sugar. No, you know. <laughs> And so everybody's like, what the f-? And so this resentment there. Yeah. It's like, okay, when is he leaving so we can get back to business as usual? Right. And so there was that, you know, so there were these, like, it was a lot of rebellion against some of the things that he was um, pushing because there was no transition. And he was a first generation of a lot of these major revolutionary shifts. So right. he didn't, he was just gangster style with it. Mm-hmm. This is out the house now. I think at one point, I can't remember what happened, but it was like a, he put a, 
something, I can't remember what was going on, but the punishment was, it was like chains put on the, um, the refrigerator. It was like, what's good? <laughs> what's good, homie? Now, you're a plant-based person, right? Mostly. I don't, I'm not vegan because occasionally I eat fish. Okay. But my body really operates optimally with a completely vegan diet. So that's what my body wants. And so, but every now and then I may eat fish. Every now and then, I'm a, like the sweets thing for me is, whew. So are you talking about like pastries, cakes and stuff or like Cake, candy? Anything chocolate, not so much candy. I do every now and then, but mostly cakes, pastries, brownies, ice cream. That's, that's like my thing. Okay. And so, um, Mostly it'll be plant-based desserts, but every now and then I'll just be like, I just want me some regular old ice cream. Um, but my body suffers through that. It doesn't, it doesn't like that. So when he was, when, when we were rebelling, you know, we rebelled and like, there's certain things I never had though. Like I never had a hamburger. I never had steak. Even to this had, day? No, I don't know what red meat tastes like. Okay. So when I was say rebelling, it was like chicken, fish. It was like ice cream, pizza. A snicker. You know? <laughs> that was like, yeah, you know what I mean? Okay. Um, I remember so I was telling somebody a funny story. We were in New York and, you know, we had our, we had our whole thing. We had our whole um, process down for how to like, you know, hide the food. And so we were in New York. I think we were staying at the Howard Johnson Hotel and we had ordered, dad left. We're like, okay, bye dad, bye. bye. We got a beach to go to something to see tonight. So someone had ordered pizza and like some chocolate layer cake. Homie came right back. So somebody out on the fire escape with the pizza, like they got drugs. It was like, you know, it was like might've had, might as well have had like drugs, you know. Somebody's out on the fire escape with the pizza. We put the cake in the, um, in the bathroom, in the bathtub, it shut the, uh, closed the curtain. Dude goes right into the bathroom. He I knew. know he knew, I know he knew. He didn't say anything. I, that happened a lot too. Where oh, so he didn't say he didn't call y'all out on he didn't it. Call, but I know he knew. I'm like, he went right into the back. I, I know he saw that. I don't know if he saw that. What do you think that was about? I think he wanted to know what we were doing, and I think he also wanted us to know that he knew without saying it. Um, because at the time, I didn't think he knew, but in retrospect, I'm like, he had to. You could smell it, right? He knew. Of course he knew. But then I think even, even with all the rebelling we did, you know, our diet had to be so much healthier than the average American because I'm like, I'm telling you, I've never had a hamburger. Right. I don't even know, and I, and I never had a desire for it. So then it was, so because he, we were all very athletic. Everybody was mm. extremely athletic. So by that, so what, what, how it came back around full circle for me, because you know, oftentimes if your parents are telling you, you can't do it that you want to do you gotta it. You got to do it. You got to do it. Yeah, yeah. So you have to own the why. So all of us owned our why and at some point in our life. And so for me, it was high school when I was like really serious about track. And I realized when I'm eating dairy, I'm eating chicken, I'm eating my body. His body different. was like, nah, yeah. sluggish. It just wasn't doing it. But when I was completely um, meat-free and dairy-free um, and eating like doing the food combinations that he mm -hmm. had us doing, you know, not eating after eight and 
you know. Intermittent um, fasting before intermittent fasting was even a thing. Exactly. Yeah. Eating only fruit before, you know, 12 noon and all that, you know, drinking my water. Man, my body was like this, homie, this right here. So I was like, okay, daddy was on to something. I, I can give him that. Strange question, maybe. Have you ever disappointed your father? Definitely. What did that look like? Um, I'm trying to think. I just know whenever it happened, it was devastating because it was so like, man, we never wanted to disappoint him. Um, I'm trying to think as a kid, you know. Because he don't strike me like I'm a beat your ass kind of dude. No, that's, he didn't hit us. Yeah, he, I, I didn't. I got that. I get the feeling that he that that was like that was just some some old slave shit that they just that we used to do for some old crazy reason. And now there's another way of. of and so that's one of the reasons why I was asking, like, what does yeah. that? But you would I mean, honestly, I would rather get and my mom didn't hit us much either. But, you know, she did spank us. Uh, but I would much rather her hit me than him just give a look. I mean, because there was like, he was a force of nature. So there was like a, an energy of like, nobody wants the wrath of Big Gregory. The world don't want it. We mm -hmm. certainly don't want it. I mean, you know what I mean? Energetically, it was just like, uh, if he gave the look, you were just like done. You were just done. So you didn't want to disappoint him. I never wanted to disappoint him. And I'm um, trying to think, like, as an adult. Uh, what could you, what, what do you think you, because I'm. I'm trying to think. I know I have disappointed him. Not, not major, major stuff, but, you know, because I can remember times where he was, like, you know, upset about something that I said or did. But. You know, and I would just be, in the moment be like, oh, my God, my world is done. Yeah. Kind of quickly blow over. And I realize, I mean, you know, you can go online today and see, like, how many different ways can Dick Gregory curse somebody? Else? Oh, it's a you gang. Of I mean? <laughs> it's like it's a wrap. So I think I also was like, well, you're kind of in good company because you didn't curse that everybody. Loved. And shout out to the real black dude, because he would get in that brother's. Oh, listen. I've uh, I've seen them all, at least the ones that are on 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 the on the line. And I never even got cussed out like a cuss out cuss out. So I'm so sensitive, you know. So my version of getting cussed out by dad didn't even compare to just raising his voice or something. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I can't. I promise I cannot remember. Like. I can't remember disappointing him. I, I can't remember a specific incident, but I know that I have. Um, but I also know that it was bigger in my mind than it actually was. Okay. Because the next day he was like, it was nothing. But in my mind, I'm just like, because I never wanted to disappoint him even a little bit. Yeah. It was monumental for me. So in the house with 10 kids, it sounds like a lot of different types of energies, a lot of different types of interests. Mm -hmm. How did you find your voice in a sea of all of those different types of energies? I know you said that you 
started coming out of your shell around like high school period. When did you find your voice? You know what? I think I found my voice at home much sooner. You know how kids who are not comfortable at school, then they get home and they're just like explode into mm -hmm. their freedom. Yeah, yeah. That was me at home. Okay. Yeah, at home I was very, um, I was pretty sassy at home, probably because I was so much repressed energy. Okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. what I didn't express at school, at home, it was like, I was totally me. I was uh, very, I was the family tattletale. Um, oh, that's a nice way of saying snitch. I was the family snitch. It was bad. Like it was, I was not safe when mom was gone because I was going to get hemmed up because they was like that one there. She's not like the rest of us. There was a coolness about my family that I really didn't have as a kid. And I knew it. Like there was just like a Gregory coolness. Mm. that Everybody was just, um, you know, all my sisters, you know, they had these big afros. They had their jeans. They all played basketball with the dudes. Like it was this thing of like, cool and part of cool was not being very emotional now today i don't think that's very cool right but at the time that's what we associated cool with you yeah know? cool is cool cool is you, cool. you ain't too high you ain't too low you cool right i was anything but i was like always in tears i was always telling on somebody i was always the uncool kid you know it's like dang she coming in she fucking it all up mm -hmm. but, but i knew that i was different in that way and I was that way anyway, you know? So it was just kind of like, I knew that I was a bit different from the rest of them in that way. Um, I was, I sang pretty early. So that was another thing that um, identified something specific that I had. That was you know? yours. That was mine, you know? All right, come on, Lila, come on, Lila Yana. You know, it was always like, sing a song from the whiz, you know? Mm. Um, and so I had, I had a voice there. Um, and you know, I love to sing, I love to dance and I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, I was, I was pretty, I was pretty sassy, I think as a kid at home. And I also, also absolutely wanted to be just like my older siblings, my older sisters. I thought they were, and I was just telling my sisters the other day, I was like, when you think about all the celebrities that we would love to be with, oh, if you could spend a day with, I can't think of anybody I would want to be around more, honestly. Than your older sisters? Yeah. I mean, they are just, they are it to me. What makes them it? Man, like, so. It's so crazy how your energy just changed. It's so damn cool. Like, um, I don't like, okay, so there's 10 of us, right? 10 of us, you know, living. And when we get together, I think part of it is from a little girl listening to their stories. It was always, like I always superimposed myself, like I'm there, mm. you know? So hearing about everything that they did at school and in sports and traveling around the world, it was just like, man, I'm gonna be as cool as Lynn one. I'm gonna be as cool as Zenobia one day. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that thing Paula did when she wasn't afraid. When you know, when they had the Junior Olympics at their school and she, you know, so I think part of it was like the myths and the legends of yeah, them. Yeah, so yeah. that was from young. So it was just like, so the fact that now I'm a grown adult and even though they're still my 
big sisters, it's like we're still now looking across. Mm-hmm. That to me is still quite amazing. Right. Because I'm still in many ways, I feel still like a little girl in a lot of ways in the family construct. But it's just like, wow, I'm grown too. We can just have like real live conversations. Yeah. And they're just so chill. And they're so like, they're the opposite of my dad as far as like, they don't want a spotlight. They don't want, a, they don't want the mic. They don't, you know, we're not the type that would fight over, you know, like we're going to fight over some money or we're going to, they're just like. You're too cool for that. Yeah, they're cool. cool for that. You can have that. You good. You good. So it's just like, and then they're just like naturally spiritual without being preachy. Mm. I feel like my quality of life is elevated when I'm around them. Wow. My sister Satori is like a, a Dick Gregory Jr. She's like the holistic health being. Not because she's trying, just because that's just how she lives her life. Right. So I'd be like, sis. I need such and such and such and such. What do I need to do for this? My, you know, my leg is aching. She's like, sis, do bop, bop, bop. Whatever she says to do is done and I'm better. You know, or she'll just send me some, you know, some YouTube link that just is like the very thing that I needed to see. Mm-hmm. Um, we call my friend, we call my sister Zenobia. I mean, I, I, probably, I, don't, I probably shouldn't be saying this out loud in public, but we call her Jesus. And it's <laughs> like, she's like. Okay, <laughs> but I just don't know of another human that I'm close to that is as unconditionally loving as her in, in a way that seems superhuman, in a mm-hmm. way that's like, I would love to get to that place. Wow. Um, and so it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Like she's, she's a phenomenal being to me. Mm. Like to me, I, would, I watch her like I would watch a guru, you know? Like I wanna, I wanna walk like that. You know, uh, my, I, 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 the way I engage my ego, I know I have so much work to do. I know the ways in which I still really need to be right. I know, and I watch her and I'm like, man, and she's human, of course. But I'm just like, whoa, like I, we came out of the same womb. Yeah. And I get to watch her like I would pay to watch somebody and hear them talk or just watch them live. You know, my brother, Johanse. Um, my brother, my, all of my brothers and sisters, I mean, I could point out so many things for different mm-hmm. reasons, but they just, they walk good. And they, mm. and I think the other thing is, there's a, there's a Gregory thing about us where we're like, you know, we are kind of different. Like we can't even, we can't even act like we're not. We do, there's a, there's a humility as much as I can, as much as, you know, I have an ego and still get to deal with that. There's a, there is a family humility I would say where where people say, well, what was it like growing up with Dick Gregory? Or it must have been, you know, um, you know, even like having money. Like it was like rich was like a bad word in our house. Like you didn't talk about it. You just didn't because it was uh, the understanding was like everything that we're doing in the larger scheme of things is the goal is to help leave our environment better than we found it. That's it. So it was like, that's how we measured wealth even, you know, because dad had tens of millions and gave it, literally gave it all away. So it's like, that ain't shit. The money ain't shit. That ain't, you know, it's like what you really got though, what you working with, you know what I'm saying? So that was like, that was the currency. Mm -hmm. That was the currency. The currency was, you know, how good is your walk? How good is your walk on those days when you didn't have it? How good is your walk? And so, yeah, many times, you know, my walk didn't look good. It was ugly, <laughs> you know, but at least that was the, that was what was the prize. That was the goal. Yeah. That was, so, you know, I remember even asking my mom one time, like, um, we had a, um, 
a woman who was very close to our family who, who cleaned. And in my mind, you know, at school, it's like they call that a maid. So I was like, well, is she a maid? And she, don't, don't say that. She's our friend. She, so it was like, in my mind, the things that the outside world would say, you know, they're rich, they have a housekeeper, they have this, they have that, they have that. None of those things were relevant in our home. And so it did something, you know. We weren't the same as the children of other civil rights activists mm -hmm. or other, I mean, just celebrities, period. You right. know? However, we weren't the same and we knew that we weren't. We didn't grow up um, under the kind of microscope that they grew up under. I mean, yeah, we were in a microscope, under a microscope in some ways, but not like that. Yeah. Not like, you know what I mean? So it was like, dad's famous. We're not. Yeah, that's dad's world. And when we enter that world, yep, we get everything. You know, we've been the you know, we're staying at the five star hotels or we down in the Mississippi in the ditches. You know what I mean? We're sharecroppers who can't read or write, you know, so it's like the worlds were so varied. And daddy was the same. He had that same pimp walk up north as down south. Mm -hmm. So it was like, who going to check me, boo? But the currency was the real currency was not just that he was bold and brilliant, but what he was willing to use it for. Yeah. And that he was willing to sacrifice everything for the good of humanity, you know? So that part, that part made us different as a family. Yeah. Absolutely. There's something, you can't live in that life and not be different. So even like in school, when, Gen you know, kids are followers. Most, most of the, we're, we're people are taught mm -hmm. to be followers. So, you know, you have that small group of, um, leaders at the, at the top who are leading in a good direction and a small group who are leading in a negative. And most folks are just in the middle. They're going to blow which boom, way boom, the wind boom. blows. And so I knew better than that. So the times when I chose to go along, to get along, to act like, you know, I'm a laugh at something, even though it's not funny and knowing that somebody's getting hurt. The few times I did that, it hurt me different. Yeah. And even the teachers would be like, I expect a different of you because I know you're not the same. And other kids will be like, what are they talking about, Ayana? Like, I'm like, I know what they're talking about because I'm not you. Right. Can't be you. Right. That's so... That's so amazing. I heard in one of your interviews, you, um, you talk about like how your dad, like, like he's in all of you guys, like in a way, and there's this light that he had and this rhythm that is just inherent in like the family, that everybody, and, and you describing that. And I don't know how we teach, I don't know how you teach that to people other than just living it. Right. And you, that, that's, not a, that's not a word based class. Like you have to actually, that's an action that you've got to demonstrate to, co to really communicate what that is. Mm -hmm. um, True. Because otherwise, the other actions of just acquiring the stuff will supersede the words, because then you'll just be so focused on the stuff, the tens of millions, the cars, the house, that just telling you that it ain't, that it ain't shit ain't enough. You gotta like really demonstrate that through your actions. Right. And, and, and it sounds like, you know, through through the process of your father doing that, that you you all clearly saw what the real value of, of, of what the real value was. 
and it wasn't necessarily um, the money right. or any of that. And, no. and it never is, right? No. It's like knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing. Like, yeah, we know what $10 million can buy you, but, but what, what, can, what can giving $10 million away get you, as an example? That might not necessarily even be something people factor into their equation when doing that. Um, when did you realize you could sing, like, and you wanted to sing? So this is what had happened. I was 13, and I entered a, a singing contest. Now, I knew I could sing when I was in, um, I knew I could sing in elementary school. It was just fun. You know, it would be like thing, you know, at the family reunion. Come on, little Yana, sing that song from the Wiz. And um, so that was cool. When I was 13, I entered my first singing contest. And you had to like win a round and then come back to see if you could win the whole thing. Okay. And I was, oh my God, I was so scared. And you remember what you sang? I sure do. Um, well, I remember my final song. The first song I sang was, um, is it Patty Austin and James Ingram? How do you, How do you keep the boo playing yeah, and then the fade away? That song. I can't think of the name of it. What? It's now or never. Yes. I'm not afraid. We're going to get to the song. Yes. I'm not afraid. Forever always. Yeah. I can't, the words. Are, I, the words are, how do you keep the song from, uh, from fading? Okay. Shit. How do you keep the song from fading? I don't know. But I'm that's, sorry. That song. Okay. Everybody know that song because you sang it and you got a nice voice. Man. Thank you. For, hey, hey, listen, you know, just let me know if you want to put me on a uh, track. I'm just kidding. I think we might need to work. <laughs> um, so I sang that and I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't win that round. And so I was really disappointed. But the guy, one of the guys who was running the contest said, come back another time. I think you could get it. And um, so I was just like, so I went back another time, and I can't remember what that song was, but I won that round, so I was exciting. Okay. And I came back, and I sang Shaka Khan's This Is My Night. I don't know that it song. It was on the album of Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan, Let Me Rock It, Shaka Khan, and Through the Fire. It was on that album. The, um, I just remember the first words, um, I'm putting on my makeup, now it's time to make up. Owners of the night are calling me. Um, uh, I can't remember the rest, but then it was like, this is my night. I'm going to do it just right. I'm going to let this magic shine. It was a perfect song. I mean, even lyrically for the night. For right, the moment, right. Right. So this was a really big thing because it was like all the winners of the other rounds were there. There were like full bands there. There was like a rock band. It was. Wow. Um, yeah, it was like a. <laughs> All my friends were there. It was at, um, shout out to Puffer Bellies and uh, Hyannis Wareham. Shout out Puffer Bellies. Shout out Puffer Bellies. I don't know if they're still around, but uh, I heard they're still around. They were like a teeny bopper club, you know, okay. for like under 18. And so um, all I know is that I won that daggone contest. And I remember I got, because I think the prize was $300. And... Um, all my friends were just like screaming and going crazy and I was just so excited. And so at that point, 
I was like, I, I can I can sing. I can sing. And um, and I remember this is what I used to do. So I was in school in eighth grade. I was uh, in the choir, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, no, not the choir, chorus. We had chorus. Oh, of course. This is Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Don't talk about a choir. Me. I didn't know nothing about My no bad. I didn't know nothing about no choir. We were we were in chorus. And so my teacher was like, if you could just picture that typical, you know, she had, you know, very long nose and she was very always, she never smiled. And mm. she was always very, um, you know, very conservatively dressed. And I was an alto and she, I, she, I, she definitely liked my voice, but I would sing to blend in with my peers. So they never heard the soul in my voice. It was almost like that. Because that's what you're I supposed was, to do. Right. I was scared. I, I hadn't hit high school yet. I hadn't hit my... My Yana Revolution. Okay. So let's say we're singing. Um, <laughs> I would do this thing where I would sing the song at school and then I would come home. And again, all that repressed energy was like, now nah, I'm going to do it how I sang. And so in school, you know, hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So that's all she had heard of me. I get home and I'm like, they hear me in the bathroom because I just got to get it out. Hark the herald angels sing, <laughs> glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. So all of that's bubbling up in me, right? right? And so when I sang the song, uh, Shaka Khan song, This Is My Night, we had recorded it in the studio, too. So I had brought it, to, I brought the tape, you know, we had tapes back then, the cassette mm -hmm. tape to school, and it was going around the class, and, 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 um, and the kids were listening to it, and so one of my friends gave it to the teacher, and I was horrified, because it was like, those two worlds were not supposed to collide. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so... My friend gave it to the teacher and asked her if she could play it. So she played it, just frowning the whole time. And I was just like, so it, the, the song ends and she's like, that was quite good. We should hear it again. Oh. And she, <laughs> she played it again. I was like, oh my God. So anyway. She was hating on it. She was boiling. And I couldn't believe she liked it. Um, so anyway, it wasn't until... Uh, College, no, yeah, in college, you know, I wasn't even taking music seriously. If I did, I probably, I went to Howard, I probably would have uh, been in fine arts. I was a sociology major, African and African American studies minor. So music was still just like hobby, just had, still had no intentions mm -hmm. of like pursuing music professionally. And then I was like um, being called on as a student activist, you know, because now I'm in DC, so now everybody knows I'm Dick Gregory's daughter. Now, I'm in a world where it's like mm -hmm. how it would have been if I had grown up like that. I'm in a black city. Right. And so um, then I'm, you know, that was, at the, I, I got to Howard in 1990. That was the, the first Bush was in office. First war in the Persian Gulf. Well, you know, not the first, but um, 1990. So it was like, I was a part of an organization called Student Call Against the War. I was a part of all these different student organizations and movements and marches. And I became like one of the singing voices for the movements, you know? So my experience, first experience singing in DC was through a bullhorn. Wow. You know? 
it wasn't until like at a rally at rallies that was what you know i'm singing freedom songs protest songs that was like my introduction to singing as a young adult one of the things that changed my mind in this process was hearing you on one of your interviews talk about your activism. And as you were singing, it was the first time I had ever connected the dot between how important that was. Mm. And there was something else that you said in another interview when you were talking about kids and how kids put their headphones on and the adults are trying to get the head to get the kids to take off the headphones. And you were like, no, 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 no. I want to get in the headphones. Yes. That was when it clicked. And I didn't, I didn't understand the power of the voice and of song in activism until preparing for this and then to hear you it's probably just as powerful as any other element mm. when it's used but i think anything can be said in that way yeah if you're clear on your role in it i yeah. think sometimes the ego gets involved um fear and all of these other things, fame, notoriety, and we lose sight of how we can actually tap into the full purpose yeah. by aligning with it in a way and then allowing, because it's not you, it's not, this thing isn't us. We're more like the, the vessel to just let, let it out, to let right. it shine out. Right. And when you connect with that in a way, I feel like that is the most powerful element. And I feel like when you're doing your work and your activism and your art, all of those things, it feel like it's kind of, it's, it's interchangeable. It's all a part of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And if the objective is to leave the world a better place than you found it, everything you're doing is in pursuit of that in some way. Mm -hmm. And I never, I never understood that until I started watching some of your interviews because I was like, I, that is definitely a power. And it, it blew my mind in terms of understanding that. Mm. So thank you for um, helping me see it in that way. Because I never, I never equated singing to being a form of activism. Gotcha. I, never, I never equated it to being the same thing. And maybe the, the, the song coupled with the words, because I know that you write too. Mm -hmm. um, those, that being, a, that, that combination and, and hearing you talk about your dad and, and people um, marching with no weapons and the people without the weapons actually having fear for them because they're chanting these songs. Like that's a, the idea of that is, is, is fucking overwhelming. It is. It really is. It really is. And you don't have a weapon. And you don't have a weapon. And, the, and, the, and you got officers, a whole militia, of folk, guns pointed at you. And 
they have fear in their eyes and you have nothing in your hand and you are moving with a force that is so powerful that they shook and they don't know why. God. When did you, when did you know, when did you make that connection between song and like activism? Were you doing the, I mean, I think, I think your life is probably a form of activism just given, you know, your lineage, but when did you connect the songs and not, when, when, when were you clear in that? Honestly, I think it was from the beginning because, you know, growing up marching, those songs, those, those uh, spirituals, freedom songs, protest songs, mom was teaching me those before I even marched. So part of the music that was just running through me was protest music, was freedom music. So, you know, I was probably home with mom and, you know, she, as she, if she's reminiscing and talking about different times that she'd been arrested and singing, you know, ain't gonna let nobody turn us around, turn us around, turn us around. We gonna keep on walking, keep on talking, marching down at Freedom Lane. Oh, freedom, oh, freedom. And then, you know, all of these songs, um, and then um, songs that, that enter the home from, uh, you know, Sweet Honey and the Rock and other musical groups who dedicated their whole musical repertoire to healing and liberation. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. Mm. And so it's all of this conversation around freedom. And so the music speaks to freedom and... Um, we're going to keep on walking, keep on talking, marching down that freedom lane. Everything is speaking to that. So even spirituals that were taken from slavery that now are now being used in the, in the 50s and the 60s and even today. But, you know, at the time, these are songs that I was learning mm -hmm. like secondhand from my mom, from dad, from watching footage. And so I'm singing those songs. And um, those were bo some bonding moments that I would have with my mom. So then having the chance to actually sing those songs, once I march, I'm like, I know these songs. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm a part of this. Like, this is a part of my blood line. And so then fast forward to Howard University, um, you know, and I'm singing through the bullhorn, you know, a lot of these same songs, the songs we're still singing. We may change up some of the words to make it specific to the specific issue. Um, and so then, so then, so you take a song like, Oh, freedom. Um, and, and then fast forward, I'm working with young people. I'm out of college now. And as a matter of fact, how I met Ashe was uh, at Martha's Table after school program. And that was really where I realized, like, we got to get the headphones. I, I need to get inside the headphone because we're, like, trying to get the headphones off. They're listening to all kind of all kinds of low vibrational music, mm -hmm. but we don't want to diss them for it. We want to understand it and say, hey, look, let's talk about it. Let's break the lyrics down. And I'm like, in addition to that, what are they interested in? What is it, what is it that I can talk about that will be relevant to them where they can get it? You know, because if they may listen to Old Freedom and it's just so old that there's no connection. So then I began bridging the gap between songs that were taught to me as a child to, and then connecting to, I had such a love for children. I mean, really and truly, like really wanting them to have 
a sense of nourishment and nurturing and a sense of purpose of like how brilliant you are. And I want you to know how all this energy got misdirected. Yeah. You did not come up with the idea that you want to be a drug dealer. You did not come up with the idea that you want to, um, that you want to shoot somebody. It has nothing to do with being black. Matter of fact, let me show you what we really come from. And, and, and let me show you how they're using you as a pawn. And that thing that you think you want to buy, it was already put in your head, yeah. you know, is you, for you to be a consumer and for you to, 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 to be, to everything you do, for it to be um, a liability in some way and that for them to make, you know, the larger society uh, to make money off of you. So when I started writing music, I started writing my first album, Beautiful Flower, which is what my name means, it was at Martha's table. It was with Ashe and, and, and Timothy Jones, who was the director. Ashe was the assistant director. And um, uh, Jen Thomas was actually the, was the director as well. Um, so anyway, I was, those, were, those were some of the staff that I was working with that were all just like-minded people. And then, um, and then, and then our, teen, and our teens, our kids, mm -hmm. we, we just adored them. They adored us. They trusted us. And so... I was trying out my music on them, knowing that I wanted to elevate the space through music. So one of the songs that I wrote called Warriors Rise, um, ironically, that my father was featured on, the only song I ever did with my dad. So the word, I don't even know, I haven't sang it in so long, but the words, the lyrics are relevant and, will make a and I'll make the connection between like what I was doing then and then going back. So it was like, um, this is a freedom song meant to go around the world. Critical time everywhere in the world. Wake up, wake up, cause we stand at war. Please ask yourself, what are you living for? So you say you're a no limit soldier, but you're living off the lies that they told you about what and who you are. You ain't never been a thug, you was born a star. Mm. With all the ice and the platinum chains, I guess slavery has a new name. Willie Lynch gets to win again every time we hurt each other. Through material lens, baby girl, your body not for show. The money he give can't feed your soul. Don't you know you hold the world in your hands? So change the game, respect yourself, and the world will follow. Warriors rise. I see the fire in your eyes. Take back your life, take back your life. And so I'm talking to them at that particular time. Um, no, everybody was talking about, I'm no limit. I'm a no limit soldier. Right, right. Master P. Master right? P was, yeah, he was banging. And so I'm like, if you really know limit, are you really willing to stand? I know you're willing to die, but are you willing to live? Yeah. You're willing to die if somebody stepped on your sneakers. That's not the conversation I want to have. Are you really gully with it? So then it was like, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, the, 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 the platinum chains and the ice and then allowing them to hear, um, the Willie Lynch letter, whether it was a fictitious letter or not, mm -hmm. it don't matter because it was based on the truth. Yeah, it's <laughs> <So> the truth. <laughs> allowing them to see, like, do you see how this was broke down? And, dang, we, we, we pawns? Like, hold up, ain't nobody trying to be a pawn. So wait, 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 let me get this straight. You saying this is who our people were? You saying this is what we did? You saying the very subject that I'm failing, my people created it? You saying when I look at the pyramids, oh, that's based on A squared plus B squared equals C squared, and now I can understand in motion, in living genius motion, how our ancestors created that, how everything from the world civilization emanated from this continent, and now 
it's going to be a more difficult conversation for me to have with myself that I can't. Yeah. And so for me, that then became how the music emerged. It emerged from a real need that I was seeing with our young people and, and, and serious stuff they were dealing with and struggling with around um, self-hatred and around, you know, you know, just being able to co-create peace in the space. And well, peace has to begin with self-love. Well, where does that start? Well, they taught us to hate ourselves. Well, where can we, where can, how can we shift that? So then it was really like the liberation theology and mentality and household that I came out of was just a natural, this, my music was just gonna be a natural continuum of what I heard as a child. Message. Message. <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't want to get up as being um okay. a slight veer, but relevant. Sure. Have you ever um experienced ayahuasca? No. I've been talking about it lately. Okay. Should I do it? Should do it. Okay. Should definitely do it. You should definitely do it. Wow. You should definitely, definitely do it. Do you know if your dad did? I don't know if he did it. You should definitely do it. Why? Your um. It's like a layer of reality that becomes available to you mm. that you didn't know existed. Mm. And it's hard to communicate the actual experience because it's not it's not based in the framework of like language, but more of feelings, but an analogy that I can use, that I have used often in the past is, you know, we can, we can walk around, everything that we're doing is in, is in contrast to something else we've either seen or heard about. Mm. And so if that, if that contrast was a, was a, was a glass, as an example, we're just feeling our perception of what that is with our experiences of it. So, and this is the fullness of the glass. And like, let's say this fullness is the happiest of happy we've ever been or ever heard that you could possibly be. Mm -hmm. And so everything is based in contrast to that. Okay. And then you go and you take ayahuasca in this responsible way and you realize that your perception of the fullness of glass wasn't even a drop. It wasn't even a drop. Wow. It's, mm. it's the most beautiful, eye-opening. It's helped with my like depression stuff. It's helped with just... Mm. The, the idea and this concept of choice um, 
you'll laugh at your ego and just how ridiculous the concept of it is. And wow. that doesn't mean you're going to necessarily put it down. You'll just, it shifts your relationships to everything profoundly. Mm. Um, your dad, I'm not, I'm not going to say he came to me, but he, something he said, I thought about in my first ayahuasca experience. We were outside in Brazil, and um, we were outside in the grass. And your father talked a lot about, um, that I've seen online. I'm saying it like I knew him. Mm -hmm. um, walking outside with your feet on the grass first thing in the morning. Yeah. And like how there is something there with yeah. that. I felt that. And I remember when we were there with the sun rising and I had my feet on the grass and I'm laying in the grass and I'm doing all of these things. I'm like, this is what Dick Gregory was talking about. Wow. This is what. You were you, literally thinking that? You gotta be outside with your feet in the grass. I'm like, this is beautiful. <laughs> and then I'm running, I'm laughing, I'm crying. It was, please. If wow. ever given the opportunity, please, and, 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 and the, a responsible opportunity to do it, please do it. Um, mm. Mm. Because it, it, um, it, changed, it changed my life. I've done it several times since then. But um, mm. yeah, it, and what made me want to ask is I feel you're very connected. And for somebody who feels connected, there's another layer of that. Yeah. That once you experience it, you at least know it's there. Wow. Because you won't know it's there without it. Okay. Wow. I have moments here, Stevie Wonder song, Gonna Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, Power Flower. Mm. I sit here and listen to that song sometimes and I literally have the equivalent of an ayahuasca experience mm. listening to that song. Ooh. I will be in here. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's a connection of physical, mind, body, everything to like something that is so much greater than yourself. You dissolve in a way and you just become one. I didn't Without ayahuasca, I wouldn't even know how to look for that. Mm. Because the crazy thing about it, and I'm going to shut up after talking about it, there are, there, these opportunities exist in every moment of our lives. Mm. We're just busy doing a bunch of things. Mm. We're distracted. Shut up and listen. Um, they're speaking. It's, it's literally right there. And so in ayahuasca, if you, take it, if you take it enough or once or whatever, you can start to understand what has to happen within you to orient yourself, to connect to it, yeah. so that you don't have to always go. So like sometimes I could be here and be doing something, and then I'll move, and then I'll see something in a certain way, because it's almost like a, a, a key like a lock wow. and, and it has to do with sound. 
Sound is a very, very, very big part of the experience because there is a resonance there that aligns the things that need to be aligned to open this up. So any ayahuasca experience you have, at least from my, the ones that I've been to, music is always a part of it. The chanting, the singing, these vibrations create, it aligns things in a way, because like most of our life, we're doing this during the day. So the opportunity exists, but it's all like this. And so in ayahuasca, one day I'll recognize this and that'll stop. And I'll be like, oh, that looks like that's on the path. That looks like that's on the path. And so I'll sit and I'll be like, oh, and then some, another layer will start to unlock and then another layer will start to unlock and then you feel it and then you connect to it but I, I wouldn't have known what to look for in just like normal day-to-day -day life mm -hmm. if I hadn't if I haven't done it enough to at least know what that starts to look like the initial part of the unlocking of it. Amazing. Amazing. It's amazing. It's, um, it's, it's love. It's been coming up a lot. Has it? A lot, yeah. And I actually talked to um, a group of sisters who did it and shared their experiences. And it sounded like wherever they went, it was some, I think they went somewhere in, was it Central America or South America? I can't remember. It wasn't Brazil, but, um, Wherever they went, it was clearly legit, and it was clearly like yeah. on point and life changing. And my god sister was like, "If you do it, I want to go with you." And we recently, she recently said, "Like, are you, you know, thinking about?" I was like, "Yeah, I am." Um, Please do. I am. I implore you. Wow. It would be a, it, uh, and then I'm gonna have you back so we can talk about it. That'd be a great, that, that, and we can just spend the whole time because it'll shift our conversation. Right. It, okay. like, um, it, not, it'll shift our conversation about the ayahuasca experience. Okay. Okay. Not, not just in general, but it'll, we'll, because it's hard, it's hard to talk about it if you haven't done it. I can feel, I, I can imagine. Yeah. Wow. So let okay. me, let me, let me know. Okay. Um, You're talking a lot about kids, dating. What's dating been like? Uh, you know, I was recently um, talking about the fact that I've never been in a consistent relationship for more than two years. Hmm. And um, I used to think that Okay, I'm just I'm just waiting for the one, you know, and I don't want to waste anybody's time. So if I'm clear, you know, better to be clear and keep it moving. Um, and I've always been real cool with everybody I've ever dated. You know, I've never like burned bridges or I'm always just cool with everybody. But it don't last long, you know, or at least that aspect of the relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, I've had an on and off again relationship maybe like 15, 16 years. I mean, that's, that's been over for years, but I'm saying that was the only like relationship that felt long-term, but I'm like, yeah, but it wasn't consistent. So I don't really include that in like day in, day out. I'm with you, you with me, we doing this together. Gotcha. Two years, max. 
And um, I always imagined that I would be married. I was in love with love. I was, I, when I was 12, I was dreaming about marriage. Like, I just can't wait, you know, to be married. I wanted, you know, about three kids, maybe. Um, and I, one day I, would, I, I woke up and I was like, what if you don't get married? And what if you don't have kids in this life? What if? And it was like, it was almost like I grieved the idea. And then at some point, because it was, it was, it was, I did with some grieving around it, particularly the children piece, because I so wanted that. Oh, yeah, okay. And, um, and I remember Ashe really helped me with that. She said, because she knew, she knew, like herself, I mean, in addition to having her own biological children, she's helped to mother so many children. So she right. knows me mm -hmm. in my journey with children and how many young people that I've been around and interacted with and supported on their, on their journey. And she said, you get to expand your concept of mothering because you are a mother. And that really, really, really helped me. That like, sounds like something she would say. Doesn't it sound like something Shay would say? Oh, yeah. And it landed. It really landed. And another um, sister who helped me with it, Ia Bashia, um, the co-founder of Wilson Baker Academy, uh, where mm -hmm. Shay, you know, has worked for several years and still does a lot with them. Bashia said to me, while she was pregnant with her, you know, I can't remember if that was her third, maybe the third child. You know, so she had all of this, you know, maternal, feminine energy just a oozing. Baby <laughs> about to drop. Right, right. And I was sharing with her that, you know, the pain, the emotional pain, the grief of like, because I had gone, I had started menopause early, you mm. know, because it's like, you know, you hit 30 and you're like, okay, okay, 35, and you're like, okay, 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 who? But you, you know. <laughs> That's funny. And I was like, no, nah, come on. Like, I know I can't. You know what I mean? Like, I know me. I'm like, if it's out of desperation, no, nah, that, don't, that don't resonate. You know, that's not how you live. So if it's supposed to be, like, just let it be. So then 40 hit, and early menopause popped mm. off. And I was like, no, I've, I'm not done. And then, so I remember Bashia saying to me, sis, this lifetime, you get, to, you get to rest in that way. She said, you have been a mother. You are a mother. And you've been a mother in probably all of your other lifetimes or many of your other lifetimes. This particular incarnation, this is an opportunity for you to rest in a way that you wouldn't be able to if you were personally responsible for a little person right now. And it's an opportunity for you to move around the world in the way that we need you to. And that landed. Mm -hmm. Like, not in a consolation prize. Like, it really landed because I felt like it must be that in past lifetimes, I, was, I, I had a lot of kids because I was, I'm always looking for the kids in this life. And so it felt, like, out of place. Like, well, where's mine? Yeah. And then I realized, okay. You get to do it differently. It, it gets to show up differently. Then your nurturing sensibilities get to show up differently in this life. And so there was that as it related to the children. Um, you know, I have 
no shortage of nieces and nephews all around. How many total? That abound. I don't even know now. Like, are um, we talking about 30s and 40s? No, not, okay. even, not as many as you would think for it, because honestly, most of the kids are only coming from, most of the babies are coming from like a few of us. Okay, you know, like I got you. Over half of us don't have kids, but my brother Johanse has um, five, and Zenobia has six, and so, you know, probably about 20. Okay. Um, and then some great, great, I mean, some great uh, nieces and nephews. Um, so, so yeah, so, and as far as dating, um, wow, I, after dad passed in, in 2017, after he transitioned, I went from like yearning for my husband to being like, I'm okay. And I, I felt like nothing's missing, but it, it, it also wasn't like a, I don't want to be with anybody. It was just a, for the first time, I felt complete. And I felt like if anything happens, I don't have to look for it. It'll manifest. Yeah. Whereas before, it was just like, I was looking, I was looking, I was looking. And I think that energy was so intense that it was like, <laughs> you ain't going to find it like that. Um, and so I've reached a space after dad passed where things shifted inside of me. I was so much focused on the continuum of ex showing up as the continuum of his legacy, you know, through my art. And it was, so, I, I had so much, you know, I didn't have a lot of time to be like yearning for anything because I was so full. I was so full of the life that he gave us. I was so full of the, 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 the gems, the wisdom, and just the emotion of like now he's on the spiritual plane and yeah. you know interacting with him there and so and the other thing is to be quite honest going through early menopause i mean just menopause period the hormones change so my libido was so much lower and you know i was just getting to know my new body and, yeah you know what i mean and so that also that was happening at the same time and so relationship had the idea of dating went from here to like, yeah, I won't block the blessing. If it happens, it happens. And so that's kind of how I've been living my life. I just started dating someone this year. Um, and so that's been different because nice. I hadn't, well, hadn't dated in at least five years. What do you think the two-year mark thing was about? I have no idea. I have no clue. Are you, uh, are you difficult to be in a relationship with? Have you I been told so. that? Or do you think you are? I think I am, definitely. I, and, I, and I know I'm the common denominator. Um, like, I was always the one to walk away. Oh, that. you were the one leaving? Always. They were always like... So were they good dudes, Bob? And I hate to use... I can't think of another word, so forgive me if I'm... They were good dudes. Yeah, that's a good word. They were good dudes. Um, and what I, and, and this is what, this is what I, um, in part, I always feel like, I, I blame a lot of things on my dad. In a, in a fun way. <laughs> he ain't here no more. Like, you can't be blaming that man. So I always say, I, several things I blame him for, in, in all the best ways. Yeah, yeah. He ruined me for a job. I could never work because of dad. Thank you, dad. I can't work. I mean, it just wouldn't work. Um, and when it comes to, I mean, he was such a force that, it is such a force that um, 
for me, it's hard. You gotta be like being a good dude is a requirement. There's a lot of other shit I need in addition to that. Go a ahead, get, throw, throw it at me. What you need? So, a lot of the a lot of the brothers who um, approach me, who you know, who I may have like init- who I may have like entertained, like okay, let's let's see what's 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 here, you know who were like solid brothers, um, stable, and just good, good humans. Emotionally available? Um, emotionally, well, I, that's, I'm not gonna say all of them were. <laughs> okay, I got you. Yeah, I, I, I know that. that's a big one. That is a big, that's a really big one. Yeah. But good brothers. Got you. Um, and definitely doing their best. Um, I would say that, <laughs> A good one of my my best male friends says, "You're the you're the hardest match ever." Like he, I never said this to him. He would say, "Like, good luck, good luck finding a mate because the combination that you are, there may be like one brother on the planet for you." You know, that's crazy. He would say that all the time. He's like, <laughs> "Ayana, like, good luck because because okay, here's the thing. So there's there's like revolutionary brothers." And they're not all made the same, but a lot of the ones that I interacted with were not the 360 degrees of what I would have needed. You know, there was like, that was, and I, I needed that, and I do need that. Uh, I, need a, I need a brave soul um, and someone who's got their mind on our people, for sure. Not, that's not just like, we making money and I don't care how we make this money or we, no. I, like, it matters to me what you do. Yeah. And it matters that our visions align. Um, and, you're, and, and they must align in a way of liberation for our people and for humanity and for the planet and the universe. So that's important. Um, so for those brothers who I encountered who were like, you know, revolutionary brothers, not, not all of them, I mean, I'm not thinking, but, but for some of them, it was like, they were so serious that the whole other parts of me that's just a, the complete foolish Ayana who just wants to be light and fun and funny and, you know, all these yeah. other things, there was really not a place for that, you know, so there were... Because they for our people. Yeah. And, and, we, and, and there's a deficit that we got to make up for. So the laughing and joking and playing... So there were some brothers where I felt, I felt myself kind of repressing my own freedom in that space mm. for some, you know... And then there were some brothers who were just good dudes, very American, you know, and I'm so like un-American. And so um, it was kind of like, I can't blame you for, you. there's nothing wrong with you. There's no deficit. You drank the Kool-Aid. You know what I mean? Like, but I'm saying even like, not everybody grew up with. The Gregory. You know, so it's kind of like, I can't put that on you, but that's. Is that a fair. That's what I need. Is that a fair metric? No. Is it realistic? Probably not. So after the two-year mark, obviously you knew that about the brothers relatively early, I guess. So the two-year mark will go through, and then the dudes will be, and then you'd be like, yeah, this isn't it for whatever reason. And then you'd be like, hey, let's just. So what has shifted in that 
thought process now that you feel could help the situation that you're in presently? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> to be quite honest. Okay. I don't think anything has shifted. I think, um, I think the only thing that shifted is that, I, well, I think the only thing that has shifted, which now that I'm thinking about it could be quite helpful, is because there's not a lot of pressure for, yeah, this is a big one. I shouldn't have said nothing. This has shifted to a degree. There's not as much pressure I have for a person to be um, for a person to be all of these things that I love. Because I'm also recognizing now that he does not have to be everything to you. There are things, like let's say he's not funny. I really want to do this funny. But what if he's not? But what if he's the bomb and you, well, there's other people I can get funny from. You know what I mean? Whereas before it was like, yo, I really want you to be funny though. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I feel I you. I think that has, that has shifted where he doesn't have to be everything to me. Even though there are things that I may want and need and I can say, I get that from my good girlfriend. I get that from my mm -hmm. older sister. I get that from mommy. I get that. You know what I mean? That, that, has, that has helped. Because I think what's cool about that acquiescence, if that's the use of the proper, if that's the proper use of the word, is that it gives them an opportunity to extend the same to us as well. Because for me, the idea had always been, even though I got a poem, I, I did this spoken word thing that I, that I that, uh, not too long ago, and I was like, I know I'm the shit, I just don't feel like it sometimes. Mm. I just don't. Right. And I gotta be okay with the fact that I don't. Right. I love the fact that, yeah, I feel like I can walk into a room and get whatever I wanna get out of this room for whatever purpose I wanna get out, out of it. And then I also feel, I also like the fact that I know that I walk in there and sometimes, you know, not feel like I'm measuring up. You know, that's just the other side of that energy. And if I stay, if I get close enough to a person long enough, they're gonna see both of those. And I don't want that, that side that I'm judging to be a side that they also judge mm. and use as a reason for not wanting to be with me because there's the other side of it too. So right. if they, if I give them an op, if I give them an opportunity to not be everything that I need, then I feel like I'm naturally giving myself an opportunity. I'm, I'm giving them, giving myself an opportunity to not be everything that Definitely. they need. Definitely. And then we'll figure out how we satisfy our own needs or get them satisfied in other ways together, but we're at least going to be on the same page Definitely. as it relates to that. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I, I, I so agree with that. And I think another thing has shifted is that I don't feel the need to get married anymore. Whereas before it was like a must. I, I must find my husband. And we're, whereas now I'm like, I'm flowing. You know, um, Anyone, yeah, that was the other, that's another big thing that has shifted. I think anyone that I was dating with any level of seriousness, you know how 
I mean, I don't want to say all women, but we, we're like, we didn't, we didn't already planned out the marriage. We didn't mm-hmm. already mapped out, okay, this is, okay, this is how we're going, you know, we're dreaming it all, you know, especially when there's like a powerful connection. We're just yeah, like, yeah. yes, you know. So the fact that now um, I don't feel the need to go into that. I don't dream about that early anymore. I'm just like, I enjoy you today. We hanging because it's fun. How powerful of, how important do you think your father having 10 kids by the same woman and being married to that same woman for as long as, and staying married for as long as they did, how important do you think that is to the image and to the, into into what, into all the other elements that are encapsulated into that legacy? I, one of the reasons that I believe it is, among, among other things, one of the many reasons that I think it's significant, um, because there's, there's absolutely an assault on, you know, black love. There's absolutely, in my opinion, um, it's, it's very, it's very difficult to turn on the television and see images of sustaining black loving relationships, you know. And so for young people. Pause that. I'm going to add that as a man and a woman. Okay. I'm going to add that, but please continue. Because I, I think we can see them, but I think the dynamics of the people involved are kind of different. I think it's less it's more difficult to see a black man and a black woman. Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah. No, that, that's very true. I think that there is, there is, what I have witnessed is a intentional schism between loving relationships between black men and women. And there's so much There's so much imagery of antagonistic relationships between mm-hmm. black men and black women uh, on screen, um, on social media. It is, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a pandemic. It's huge. Yeah. And so, you know, you look at, you look at shows like, you know, Love and Hip Hop or Basketball Wives or whatever, you know, and... And I think like, wow, the young sister who is watching these shows and, and as she is negotiating her own sense of womanhood or adulthood and seeing this level of, of violence, this level of um, insecurity, mm-hmm. this level of you know, there's always got to be a beef. Um, everything's going to come to an end. It's all going to come crashing to an end. Or, you know, that's over, on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. You know, they're expendable. Women are expendable. Men are expendable. Right. Um, the ghosting, you know, that's just become normalized. You know, I'm over that. No accountability. All of that. You know, that's, it's become normal. And... Um, you know, nobody even really has to learn how to talk to each other anymore. You know, you talked about hating texting. That's wonderful. 
Like, nobody has to really talk unless they want to. Nobody has to have a proper date unless they want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the beautiful thing about the image of mom and dad surviving, you know, first of all, surviving, you know, live, like dad would say, surviving, living in the most insane, racist, sexist nation on the planet. Um, and, and, and to still, you know, <laughs> say that the fact that I survived that and still have my wits about me, but in the context of mom and dad's marriage to say that that survived all of that. Yeah. And um, that when he left this plane, they were still aligned. I know how much it meant to both of them. Um, I know how much it means to mom now, you know, when she talks about him and their life together. And one thing that I think is very important to note is that, because see, for me, I've only had two years, right? So I don't know what, what I'm about to say. This is not something I've lived. I've just watched them. Mm-hmm. That there will always be times where from the outside looking in, you'd say, this don't seem worth it. Like there were times where I would be thinking like, well, what does my mom get out of this? She's holding him down. She's taking care of us. She never has a moment to herself. Like, when does she have any fun? When does she, you know, but that's from my perspective looking right. in, like I couldn't deal with that. I could, I, I would need a man who would be doing, but I am, on a, and, and I'm also looking at ways in which I feel like she's, like, he's always running the show. He's running the show. Well, when does mom get to choose? Not realizing until you, until I got older, the ways in which women, and I'm watching, I'm specifically now talking about black women because these are the women that I've watched, have been able to control so many things without raising their voice, without saying a word. Um, you know, they could do it in the kitchen, cooking. You know, mm-hmm. they could do it with what they didn't say. They could do it with a look. They could do it with asking a simple question that the effect of that question that they ask has the brother thinking, Man, does she, you know, the power of women. Yeah. So the quiet from in my mom, and I'm not saying all women are quiet, but my mom was, you know, w- my father was like, my mom was quiet, you know, in, the, in that way. Not like she was quiet with us, but I'm just saying that the two of them, the dynamic was yeah. very much, they were very much opposites. So I was more so looking at him in the power position and her in the subordinate position, but really that wasn't the case. I did not have the wisdom to see that then, yeah. to see the kind of power. you know. So at the end, when you hear dad say, no, she wasn't just Dick Gregory's wife, she was Dick Gregory. You know, I wouldn't be here without this woman. Yeah. Um, the ways in which she was able to navigate things, perhaps without us or him even knowing. So there were times when I looked in and said, man, I don't see how this is always worth it for mom. That's just from my selfish perspective mm-hmm. and my, you know, unwise perspective. Whereas when you, when you watch them go through all the years and you live through, through those years with them, or at least some of them, you know, it's like I wasn't around, you know, when they got married, but right. for that which I witnessed, you know, 60 plus years of marriage, and then you and then and then you see what they built. 
They could have walked away at any time. They could have. You think about all the things that come up in relationships. Any number of things could really be reasons to walk away on any given day. So I can't imagine how many of those things could have come up for them. Or did that you guys just didn't know about. They wouldn't even know because they was old school. They, we didn't hear, mm -mm, we didn't, I never heard them argue. That was another powerful thing. I never heard my parents argue. So um, mm. that is like <laughs> unheard of today. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, if they're arguing, kids are going to hear it. We did not hear it. If they, if they, and maybe they didn't. Um, but what I'm saying is that to, 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 to live through something, to be in it, to win it, long enough to say, damn, that shit was worth it. That is, is like, wow. You know, it's like, wow. And to talk to mom now, she could tell you, you know, for days. She'd be talking for days if you were asking why was it worth it. You know, so there's wow. something to be said about the fact that you, you stuck it out and you see the value now of how beautiful that journey really was. Um, you know, it's, it's not for everybody to stick it out. There's some relationships that you, you're supposed to split. You know, this, yeah. this ain't healthy. Um, but for those, for those relationships where the only thing that's really stopping the longevity is maybe selfishness or is uh, lack of willingness to, yeah, to sacrifice, to compromise without losing yourself. Um, there's something to be said about that. So their example, you know, see a lot of that today, you know, people get married, you know, these days, like, you know, we could get divorced in six months, you know what I mean? Um, it's, it's a different day. Could you be with a guy for a long period of time playing house without getting married? I'm going to use the old old school term, playing house. Yeah, I could. Um, I mean, if, if I could. If I could survive my two years, <laughs> look, bro, if I could survive two years. I wonder I what that I, two years is about, all, though. I think I would be all right. What do you think the two years is about? Uh, why two years? Why not three? Why not, why not six months? Why two years? Um, well, it's, I shouldn't even say, because some has been less. For some, it has been six But two's months. been max. Two max. Yeah, give or take, you know, could have been two and a half. It could have been, you know, but somewhere in that in that area. I'm not sure. I think. Is that the maximum amount of time? I'm going to say this. Just is that the maximum amount of time where you just want to give up? Mm. Where you can play the role. You can't play the role for longer than two years. That's your cutoff. Probably because it's never intentional. And I, when I look back, I'm like, yo, it's never consciously intentional. But I'm like kind of consistent. What's consistent is you've been the common denominator, who, you know, the reasons to leave, I mean, the fact that you were the one that typically always decided to leave, and the longest is usually somewhere around this time. Yeah, I think it's kind of like, mm, I don't want to waste your time anymore. I don't want to waste my time anymore. We're still cool. We're still going to be cool if you want to be. Um, if you can't be, I understand that. Too. That's some cold shit. You, you sound like you sound like one of them bro. You sound like me back in the day. Look, I get it. 
I get it. I'm sorry. I always it's, I, it's, it, it's listen. Me. If you want to be cool, we could be cool. But <laughs> no, let me tell you how I. I That's cool. That's, my brother Johanse, He. It's. I'm saying it's a running joke, but really, he really he's not playing. Which what I'm about to say is really self-incriminating. Um, Cause you think typically like, okay, your brother, your brother's gonna want you to be with a good guy, you know. <laughs> your brother's gonna be really like, and he is, I mean, he's really critical. He was critical of everybody, like, you know. But the dudes who were like, really, really, I would say in recent years, not back in the day, but in recent years, if he knows that like, I'm considering dating somebody or that somebody likes me or that I like them, mm-hmm. he'd be like, he'll say like, is, is, is he, he a really good brother? Man, leave that dude alone. Like, don't, just, <laughs> don't, don't do that. Don't even, don't even. Man eater. Don't even. And I'm like, why would you say this? And so, um, it's a funny story. I was in Miami, and this brother, um, who I had nothing in common with, but I was just so, you know, sometimes women are just so impressed with a man's boldness. This dude was just so bold, like, I'm gonna marry you. And he was just very take charge. And I was like, I, I kind of fuck with this. I don't even know who you are, but I'm okay, I'll see you. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, literally in, in a week's time, he was like planning out our life. And I, it was just kind of fun for me, you know? And so, I mean, I didn't really think he was my husband, but it was just like fun. It was, I hadn't been in a relationship in a minute. So I was like, okay, this is nice male energy. See where it go. See where it goes. So he's planning, he's like, look, I'm gonna, um, I want you to come for the, this was in January. And he said, I'm a, I, I want you to come in March and just spend all of March with me. I was like, I might just do that. So I go home, I tell my brother and his wife about the dude. And they're like, who the fuck is this dude? No, we don't know him. Like, ho, 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 back up, sister. What are you talking about? You, you sounding crazy. We don't know him. What do you mean you're going for a month in March to my aunt? No, hold up. So now Johansi's not saying anything. He's just smiling. But everybody else is like up in a roar, like, what? Yeah, we don't know this person. Who is this? We got to, you know, <laughs> have we vetted him? Have we, you leave? No. Right, right. And so, so my sister-in-law, Tiffany's like, babe, she's talking to you, Hansa, babe, do you hear this? You're not saying anything. Why are you not saying anything? Ayana's saying that she's going to potentially be in Miami for the whole month of March with a man that none of us know. Now it's January, right? We're talking about March. He scratches his head and he says, don't worry, babe. He said, don't worry, February will take care of March. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. And I was like, Uh, he's like, I know my sister. I was like, come on, brother. And so as it turned out, January actually took care of March. We didn't get to February. But but I mean, again, (sighs) that was. Nothing was clearly going to happen in that scenario, but Johanse is just so, he so knows me, and he's just like, sis. What does he say it is? I don't know. He hasn't really said what it is. I don't think I, I, now you make me want to ask him. Now I'm definitely going to ask him, what is it? Because it sounds like he has a, a, a line of sight that, that is pretty uh, acutely, acutely aware of what's going on. Yeah. I'd be I'd be interested to hear what he, what his thoughts would be about it. Look, can I ask him and then come back another day and give you the answer? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If I like the answer. 
Um, we got to talk about Stevie Wonder. Because this would be, it'd be impossible. Let's go all the way back. You said Stevie Wonder was like the soundtrack for you at a particular point in time. Mm -hmm. I know you met him, you know, like all the way through your life when you were young and all that. What, what Stevie Wonder album did you fall in love with first? Do you remember? No. I don't know what came first because I'm sure I was listening to his music and loving his music before I was like recognizing the full depth and breadth of a particular album. You know, Stevie Wonder's music was being played, so it may have been multiple songs from different albums that were just like, oh my God, loving this music. But when I was in ninth grade and I began to go into my parents' albums, I was discovering, because they were new for me, this is in the 80s. I was discovering albums of Stevie Wonders from the 70s that I had never heard. So, Songs in the Key of Life. Yes, I'm sure I had heard As, I'm sure I had heard Sir Duke, I'm sure I had heard you know, mm -hmm. Another Star. But there were other songs on there that I didn't know until I began to inhale the experience of him and those whole albums and then so it wasn't until probably ninth grade that I began to like take him on album by album so songs of the key of life of course I, I mean I just got lost in it all um, talking book um, music of my mind inner visions when I found the secret life of plants yeah it was probably like early ayahuasca <laughs> It, it was it was like that for you too. I just I was gone. I was I, I didn't understand it. There was a lot of it I didn't understand. I didn't understand his decision to do it. Like I'm saying all of this as if I know him, right? But I didn't. There were so many things about that music, about that 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 just made absolutely no sense, which mm. was a part of the reason why it made sense. Mm. And I just fell in love with it. Like to that and where I'm coming from are his two, are my two favorite pieces mm. of, his, of his work. I've thought several times about what I would ask him. I dated, I mean, that, that wouldn't even be truly accurate. I was messing with this woman and um, long, 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 long time ago. And my birthday's in September and September 8th. And she wanted to take me out for my birthday, but wanted to do it later. I was like, well, if you can't take me out for my birthday, then, you know, on my birthday, then I don't want to go out. <laughs> she went by herself. And they sat her right next to a table where Stevie Wonder was at. No. That's the closest I have ever been to potentially being in the same space as this man. And I was kicking myself for the arrogance 
the immaturity, all of that, just playing games. And I could have just been right there. Oh, my God. Because I've thought so many times about what I would ask him. Like, what I would... And one of my questions, literally, like, why this at this time? Yeah. I, I don't understand it. And I, I, but it's, I feel like he must have been on some ayahuasca shit at the time or whatever. It, 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 it it's, an, it's an amazing beauty of work. You redid, you did a rendition of Black Orchid, I think, right? What, 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 what? No, I redid, on my first album, I redid Feeding Off the Love of the Land and They Won't Go. You did They Won't Go? I gotta go. You, you didn't do a, um, a Secret Life of Plants rendition? I thought you did Black Orchid. I did a, a, a production called Black Orchid. <sighs> I, did a production black I gotta go back and listen to They Won't Go. Yeah, that was off a um, Beautiful Flower album. I thought he wrote that song for me as a child. I would sing, when I, when I found that album, I was, I was out of here. I was gone. And I would, that same forest that my dad would, um, when we were training, running, we would go to the state forest, the four mile, two miles there, two miles back. Well, I would enter the forest on my own that over. Satan. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So um, when I talked to you about running in nature and my father, you know, doing these mandatory runs with dad, mm -hmm. going to the forest, um, the state forest, it's called Miles Standish. And it was two miles there and two miles back to the house. Well, I began to run on my own. And when I, when Stevie Wonder's music began to be this like, musical backdrop for my whole world. Secret Life of Plants, that album became the way that I musically communicated with the trees and the plants in my world. I would go to the forest and I would sing every song to the trees and the plants and I would just be in tears because I knew they felt me, I knew they heard me. And I knew they recognized me. Like, yeah. I really felt like I am Black Orchid. Yeah. I am a, a Black Orchid in that I don't know if I'll ever be a star in the world. I don't know if I'll ever be a musical superstar. But I know that nature recognizes me as a cosmic star. They, they recognize me as one of their own. Like, mm. I had that level of bonding. And I wouldn't talk to m most people about it because, you know, I don't like getting into debates about, I remember being in 11th grade and this, talking to this boy about, you know, plants feel and they hear and they move and he's like, you're crazy. And I'm like, this is why I don't talk to my peers about these things. Like yeah. This. So that album was like, uh, I just remember myself just out, I can remember myself laying down in the forest and just looking up the trees and just, you know, like the sun peering through and I'm just saying, I'm feeling the presence underneath me the soil, the fertile ground, the plants, the trees, the flowers, the vegetation, and I'm just singing them songs. And I'm like feeling this living, breathing vibration frequency running through me that's so undeniable. I'm like, this is what daddy was talking about. This is what, you know, it's like, I feel it, it's yeah. happening. Now I can't make this shit up. Yeah. I'm feeling tingling in my chest. I feel like 
something like uh, the Incredible Hulk. Like, I feel so powerful. What is this? This is God inside of me. I don't have to, we don't have to go anywhere to, to get go here. Like, this is here. It's available. Ooh, that right there, Stevie Wonder, like, yo. When, did you, when did you realize it was a documentary? Um, I think when I was like running around the house, like, yo, I just discovered this album. They're like, first of all, it's not new. Came out in the seventies. <laughs> you know. Oh, like, you learned that long ago that it was a documentary. Yeah, I've run around that time. Oh, somebody told me, even though I didn't, I never, I don't even, I think I may have watched a little bit of it, but I never like watched the, oh, the whole thing. Was, I didn't know until like in the two thousands. Oh, okay. That it was a, and went and found it. I was like, I gotta. I watched it. I didn't, and then I started. I started getting more info about because he started. He um, the song "Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants" or something. He's got a thing on there where he's talking about bows. Yes. And how that's how I didn't know that that's how they actually started the company by developing these sensors mm -hmm. that measure plants' responses to human interaction. Yes. And then it went on to become some speaker electronic stuff and all of that. But I'm like, mm -hmm. the brother dropping gems in his music, in addition to all of the other stuff that he was doing. But <laughs> oh my gosh. he's my, same he's... Same old story. Where was that one, right? I think that was huh? that one where he was talking about Bose. I think that was Same Old Story, the name of that Bose would devise? Is that... Same Old Story. That Same Old Story. Yeah, I remember. That one was very emotional. I don't know why that was... Very emotional for me, that song, that particular one. Um, mm. I'm going to listen to it when you, when you, uh, well, 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 later on. Um, do you have a favorite Stevie Wonder album? I mean, growing up, I probably would have said um, Songs in the Key of Life. I, I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't a big. I wasn't a big songs in the key of life fan when I first it, heard it. It's like everybody was, right? I now. don't. I don't know. A buddy of mine tried to get me. Let me rephrase that. I wasn't a big Stevie Wonder fan growing up. Oh, okay. And I worked with this dude, and I, but I liked music. I, I, I was a more Marvin fan. Like I'm, I'm a, as much of a Stevie lover as I am. I'm an equally Marvin lover as well. Okay. So I was heavy into Marvin. And then he was like, man, you got to get into Stevie Wonder. I was like, yeah, I ain't really got into him. I was like, give me a, give me a joint to go listen to for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I'll see what I, he said, you got to start with Songs of Kill Life. I heard Songs of Kill Life and I was like, I'm not feeling it. I don't know why. I just wasn't feeling it. I went back to Intervisions, Talking Book, Fulfilling This First Finale. All of that landed wow. immediately. Wow. I had to go back to songs in the key of life to really truly appreciate what it was. But it wasn't, it was my first introduction to him and I wasn't, I wasn't feeling right. it immediately. Wow, okay. But now it's like the brother, the brother, you know, can't do no wrong. It, no, it, but much. it just didn't, I like some of his younger, some of his earlier stuff too. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Please don't go, no, that's on, um, Walking in the sun. Uh, yeah, which 
Oh, um, yeah, what's the name? When I start on this tree, keep it running to be free. Ooh. Moving on. There's a place in the sun. A place in the well, sun. Yeah, I just. Can't. Oh, right. Yeah, I like that one. But yeah, I get. So, you're going to India. Mm-hmm. Your father asks you if you're going to see the Taj Mahal. And you ask him a question about what something or something, and he makes a statement to you that really stood out to me. What was that statement? If you don't take it with you, you won't find it there. When I heard you say that, it landed like I've never had something land before. And I want to know what that meant to you when you heard it at that time. Mm. At that time, what that meant to me was oftentimes we think that what we experience in the outer world is random. That if we, um, you know, so for instance, I'll be somewhat literal going to India to see one of the wonders of the world. Um, just getting on a plane and going you know, halfway across the world, having the opportunity, the um, energy of um, the opportunity and the abundance to, to travel to these faraway spaces and places that Oftentimes, when we are in the presence of these majestic, uh, incredible experiences, they feel overwhelming. They feel like little old me and big old this, or you know, this is that's, you know, I'm I'm just so grateful to have this opportunity to. Um, and what I what I got from it is that if you did not already exist on a vibration and a frequency that called this in, you would never have called it in. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a reflection. The outer world, whatever it looks like, is some mm-hmm. reflection of whatever you've co-created internally. Um, if that's beautiful, if it's irritating, if it's painful, if it's great, there's a co-creation there. Because your eyes will only be able to see you have eyes to see and two people could be looking at the same thing my oh this is I didn't even think about this example so my father was always fasting spiritually things shift when you fast Mm -hmm. so I don't know where they were I was not a part of this but I heard the story and I have siblings who said this really happened um, there was a dad and a whole group of people were fasting, maybe like fasting on water or maybe even air, but just say it was water for like, you know, a week, two weeks or whatever. So they're in this retreat space somewhere in nature. And there was a particular day where there, all the people who were fasting, there were a couple people who were present for some moment. They weren't fasting. They had been eating. Nighttime had come. They looked up in the sky, 
and they said there was a light that took up like half the sky. Only the people who were fasting could see it. It was literally like drawn just like that. If they were, they, every, those who, who hadn't fasted were like, what do y'all see? I can't see it. Mm. Every single person who was fasting saw the exact same thing. And so they're looking at the same sky. If you don't take it with you, you won't find it there. I, what I took with me was stop separating yourself from the beauty of nature and the majesty of what the Most High has created because you are one of those creations that you, you, you are made of the same things. And so when you look and say, wow, isn't that beautiful? Look at that flower. And then you look in the mirror and can't see beauty. Yeah. That's a problem. What do you think the creator sees when the creator looks at you? So for me, it's that. It's that if you don't take it with you, you won't find it there. And understanding that I, one, if, if I'm in the presence of amazing shit. You're amazing. I'm amazing. And if I'm in the presence of something that doesn't feel, I have an opportunity to shift. I have some, there's some power that I have yeah. to do something about that. And ayahuasca really helps remind you of that. Mm. It, it reminds you because the cup gets so full, like you literally get to take it with you and more often because a part of it, when I heard him say it, it was when I heard you say it, him saying that to you, it was similar to that, but mainly it was get your shit together. Like that's a big thing mm. for me personally. Mm. And a part of getting my shit together is being still mm. in my head and in my heart and, and in such a way that allows me to experience what's there, like to be, like this idea that we've got to go search is the trick bag. It's, right. it's, it's the idea that it's outside of us is the, is, the, is the illusion of separation that immediately causes pain, immediately causes despair, that other-ism thing that we do a lot. And the moment I can sit still and recognize that whatever I'm seeing in this other thing is something that's inside of me and that I literally get to choose, I get to make the decision to focus on what I see because the ayahuasca will tell you that it's all, every, it, it's all beautiful. It's all perfect. It's all perfect. It just depends on like your vantage point. So if you can't, if you go somewhere expecting to see something other than who you are, mm. that's not even possible. That's not even possible. Mm. It, it's not even possible. Mm. And, it, and it blew. And, it was, and, and I felt like that was just one of them things he just threw out. You know, as you were describing it in the story, so much of what I... I have consumed more of your father than probably the average human being. Wow. The average Dick Gregory fan, I would say. Wow. And 
I have an idea of who, and, and I never, I've had several opportunities to meet him, you know, through with Shay and you and all that. But it was just like, I've, I've, I was always super nervous. And I think I was scared to be seen. Mm. I'd be, I think I would be much more open now, but like before, I was scared to be seen. Like I was doing a lot of hiding, a lot of running, a lot, you know, I was ducking and dodging me. And so like coming before the presence of an individual like that would just, would have been something that it would have just been too revealing gotcha. for me at that time. I feel like, okay. um, so all this in my head, right? So creating all of this yeah. shit. So, because <laughs> so much of his philosophies and what he talks about are things that I live by and I implement and I try so hard to see. Like when he talks, it's like it's like jazz. Mm. I don't judge jazz music. Like getting into getting into jazz made me shift like how I listen. It almost it also shifted how I. Uh, my relationships because when you're listening to Miles or you're listening to you know Mingus or something you don't enter into those spaces to judge but that's that's not what you're there for you're you're there to observe and to understand to whatever degree you have the capacity to mm -hmm. and if you don't understand it's not because something's wrong with them mm -hmm. it's something wrong like and wrong might not even be the best word. Like it's it's a you thing. In the same way that when you're having a conversation with your lady or with your dude or whatever, you might not necessarily understand. But just because you un don't understand doesn't mean that it's wrong. It just means you've got to sit and give it more time. Right. And I feel like your dad's words in a lot of ways were like that for me. Mm. So mm. I would sit. And if it didn't land, I would have to, if it didn't land immediately, some of my favorite songs are songs I didn't like initially. Wow. Just for my own personal. So some of these nuggets ain't going to be the, the deepest ones. Same with my relationship with my father, God bless his soul. Like, mm. the most profound shit he was ever telling me was shit when he wasn't even trying to be profound. Mm. He was just, when he was just laying them down. You know what I mean? And so your dad... Your dad's words in a lot of ways are like I'm connecting these dots for all of these things for me personally because um, he did mean he he changed. I never met him, but through his words and through listening and through his passion and his connection to his purpose, I got to see what that looked and felt like, yeah. even even the abrasiveness of it all. Yeah. And that was it was all beautiful. And he didn't give a fuck about how you felt about it, that wasn't going to be at the expense of what he felt in his, in his heart in the way that it needed to be communicated at that time. Right. Most motherfuckers don't know what they need. Most motherfuckers don't know why they want what they want right. and what they desire. And somebody come to you and speaking to you in a certain way, you don't know that's, you don't know that's why you need that. But that's, I could go on about this shit forever, so I'm going to stop. Um, sorry about that. No, I, I love it. I rambled. I love it. Um, there was something that your father said in one of the conversations with you, and I wanted to get your 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 thoughts on on it as well. 
he was talking about how talking about what he one of the things he learned from Dr. King, and that was he would rather be killed than kill. What did that mean to you when you heard that? Did you? Yeah, I'll just stop there. Um, I was very much in alignment with it. Uh, we grew up in an environment where, you know, even the concept of why he chose to have his family become vegetarian was born out of, you know, if I'm, if I am saying I don't believe in killing, then I also don't believe in killing animals for food, you know. And I don't think he was saying that no one should. He was clear that that was his path. Mm -hmm. And so um, the whole civil disobedience as a path became, it, it just spilled over in other areas of his life. And I think he... I think he understood where the real power was in the spirit realm because as a child, you know, John Wayne was his hero. And um, there was a concept of white male Western um, violence and aggression that he associated with manhood as a child. Mm. that I think at moving into his adulthood, realizing, damn, the most courageous shit he ever did was humble himself. The most courageous shit he ever did was allow himself to be vulnerable. And that that for him was... Um, the word I'm looking for, that the power of vulnerability and, and surrendering to the higher force and connecting with that and recognizing that I don't have to say, I believe that God will protect me, but just in case, I'm going to have this gun, that those are two separate ideas. But let me say this. If you say, mm. if someone were to say, I believe that God will protect me and God gave me the intelligence and ability to think and do for myself and whatever I choose to do physically is a part of that. That's a different conversation. Right. But what I'm talking about is much of what people do in physical aggression comes out of fear. fear. It's got nothing to do with God. Right. So if he's saying fear and God don't occupy the same space, I am, I am unafraid. And which is why, hence we saw the marchers walking. It was more than a march. It was more than, than the idea that I think some people have of like, oh, we just marching and chanting. Things were shifting energetically because everything is energy. Everything is frequency. And frequency shifts everything. Yeah, it does. So the physical things that we see are just matter, vibrating matter, everything. And so 
I don't think we put as much, I don't think we understand the extent to which the unseen is controlling the seen. That things moving are controlling the things that we believe are fixed. And so what I believe that he was saying is that for him, and again, I don't, he wasn't saying no one should kill. He was saying he didn't believe in that for himself because that was the path he was choosing because he had already made an agreement with the spiritual realm. We got you. You, Dick Gregory, will never have to pick up a gun. That's not a part of your walk because you have elevated beyond that. What, what a gun gonna do in the presence of? Yeah. What, you know what I'm saying? Which is why the fear in the eyes of the gunman the legal gunman in this country in the presence of a black grandmother who's walking and smiling and looking right at him, unafraid. So he was, he was so fascinated by that because he didn't know that existed. Yeah. He never felt anything like that before. So it was so powerful for him. It was like somebody going on a fast for a week and saying, I can never unfast because this is so powerful. I, I got to do this for the rest of my life. He wasn't saying the fast is for everybody, but he was clear for him that that was, he was going to be most powerful. So for him, he knew that in taking someone's physical life, for him, the karmic debt around that would be worth so much more than it would be worth. And that he would rather, knowing that his life was eternal, knowing you could only take my body once. <laughs> I live forever. So I would much rather, if, it, if I'm choosing between taking your body or you taking my, well, you go ahead and take mine, because I'm, I'm going to be here. And that's, fucks with your brain, too, to the, to the opposition, because it's like, when you don't fear death, what else do you have at that point? And when you're moving in a way to where like your energy, what you, if fear and God don't occupy the same space, you're literally moving with the God knowledge within you. That's a vibration. That is a motherfucking frequency that people around you, they won't, they won't necessarily be able to name it. And that was, I don't know how evolved I admire what I admire, I think, more than anything in the context of that is the ability to align. For me, a lot of things are about alignment mm. and, and, to, and, to, and to align with a purpose in a way that, that way, whether fear, I don't know if it just goes away. I don't know. I don't know. Or, or do you call it fear or is it an awareness? Like whatever it is, you're there's a belief that the universe got you and you're good no matter what that no matter what I think about that I think about that a lot because I you say struggle I'm just gonna say struggle I'm gonna stop trying to fight it I'm gonna stop struggling with saying struggle right <laughs> I struggle with that okay I, I, sometimes because I'm trying to be but trying. There are these two ideas of me and of people who I'm trying to acknowledge, who I'm 
trying to acknowledge both sides of mainly in myself because I know that once I reconcile, reconcile that within me, that it'll be rec reconciled outside. Mm -hmm. And the idea of all of that other stuff just being worked out, like all this shit gonna work. Once I work me out, once I get connected to my God shit, my, my universal shit, right. I'm good. Right. Because another piece of it that I thought about too was the egoic death. Mm. And how mm. so much of the battles that are taking place between humans mm. are spiritual and ego driven and all of those kinds of things and practicing that from just a ego standpoint mm -hmm. i think is a path can be a path to just naturally just doing the physical piece as well i don't need to be right you know i ain't got to I ain't got to prove you wrong in order to be right. I don't have to posture up to all of this old other shit. Just kill that dude. Like, right. whoever he is, like, he ain't shit no way. He ain't the real you. No way. So just let it just let it go. And then right. once you let that go, you might, well, okay, what else can I let go? Right. Okay, I can let this other thing go over here. What else can I let go? Oh, brother, you want to kill me, man? You good, bro. Just, just go ahead. I got... Right. So, I like that. and the idea of trying to think about that I'm thinking about all of the ways in which someone can die. I love that. Because that's the thing in me that I feel, once I accept, will die. Me too. Me too. I love that. Yeah.